you can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Our first tale tonight comes from author Michael Marks, entitled Madness Above the Clouds. The plane shook and dipped slightly, my fingers gripping the armrest so hard I could feel my nails digging into the fake leather. A soft ding sound filled the cabin as the seatbelt lights came on overhead, Hadn't taken mine off since we boarded, light or no light. Nervous fly, said the man next to me, a portly gentleman with thinning gray hair and a disheveled business suit. How can you tell? I asked him sarcastically with a timid smile. Well, you're sweating bullets white as a ghost and gripping that armrest like someone is going to try to rip you off it. Yeah, I'm not great at the whole flying thing. He clapped me on the shoulder. I wasn't really okay with strangers invading my personal space, but let it go. I had to spend another four hours next to this man, after all. You're not alone, my friend, he laughed. 
He held up his hand, exposing his fingernails. They had been chewed to nubs. My nervous habit is chewing my nails. Every flight I wear them down to nothing. I smiled and nodded, doing my best to look friendly. I honestly could not have cared less about this guy's nervous habits, especially not while the plane was still bouncing up and down. I heard something shift in the compartment above me and returned my gaze to the partly nail-biter. He was still smiling, all friendly-like, as if he were waiting for a response. Tom, I said, finally letting go of the armrest and watching my knuckles turn from white to a softer pink as I reached my hand out to the man. He reciprocated with gesture and wrapped his pudgy, clammy hand around mine, giving it a hearty shake. Jerry, he said jovially, what are the odds, eh? I raised an eyebrow, confused for a moment, and then I realized what he meant, and let out a genuine chuckle. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. I meant it, but it still sounded disingenuous. I returned my gaze to the window on my right. I pondered for a second why I always chose the window seat on planes when I was terrified to my core of flying. I always regretted it. Still, the shade stayed up the whole flight. I looked out into the darkness, nothing surrounding us but clouds and shades of gray. The shaking finally stopped, and I did my best to let my body relax. So, uh, why uh, y'all heading to London? Cherry chimed in again, thinking he'd made an in-flight friend. I turned my head back in his direction and looked down the aisle. The flight attendant was still rose and rose away from me. I needed a drink, bad. Job interview, I said. I've always wanted to move overseas, and the plane shook again hard this time. I watched the flight attendant lose her footing a bit and nearly knock her drink cart into one of the passengers. The lights were dimmed in the plane's cabin, and I swear, I could swear, I saw a flash of green light as the plane shook. I turned my head to look out the window again and saw nothing. Just a bit of chop, I heard Jerry say next to me. I wasn't sure if he was reassuring me or himself. Suddenly, the intercom cracked to life. Hi, folks, this is your captain speaking. We've hit some heavy turbulence, so we'd like to ask everyone to stay in their seats with their seatbelts fastened, and we'll try to break through this as quick as we can for you. My hands returned to the armrests, and I watched Jerry sink his teeth into his thumbnail. The intercom came on again. All flight attendants to their seats, please. I watched as the flight attendants did their best to calmly walk to their seats in the forward and back sections of the cabin and buckle up. None of them looked nervous, though, so I did my best to try not to panic. The plane continued to shake. The dim overhead lights briefly flickered as the plane took a dip that made my heart fly up into my throat. Just a little chop, I heard Jerry repeat, now convinced that he was certainly talking to himself. I thought to myself how much I would have preferred not to have a fellow flying phobic person sitting next to me in that moment. I moved my attention from him back to the window, and neither was a good option, but I really couldn't watch Jerry freak out right now. As I stared out into the dim moonlight sky, I saw something. Only a brief glimpse, but whatever it was, 
was massive and drenched in shadow. I caught only the tail end of it before it dipped below the clouds and out of my sight. I pressed my face up against the window, hoping I could catch it again, but it was gone. Suddenly the plane rocked again. It was even harder this time. The cabin lights went off for a full five seconds, as the plane shook more violently than it had yet. I heard a woman scream, a baby cry. A flight attendant called out, asking everyone to remain calm. I was not calm at all. My heart thumped at a mile a minute. A green light filled the darkened cabin, just like the flash from before. This time, it lasted longer, though, maybe ten seconds, before it was replaced once again by the normal white glow of the cabin lights. The rocking stopped and the motion of the plane began to calm. The intercom came to life again. All right, folks, it looks like we are through the worst of it. At this time, I would like to ask everyone to please stay in their seats and keep their seatbelts fastened, though. Flight attendants will come by and check on everyone and take your drink orders in just a few moments. I heard Jerry let out a huge wheeze next to me. Perhaps it was supposed to be a sigh of relief, but I really couldn't tell. Oh, crap, Jerry said, getting my attention finally. He was sucking on his thumb like he was trying to save the last few precious drops of barbecue sauce from a particularly good rack of ribs. What? I asked with a curious tone over a concerned one. I bit my finger. I, I guess I chewed too far down, drew blood. I thanked whatever God existed for keeping him from taking the thumb from his mouth and showing me. It was not a sight I wanted to see. I turned my head back towards the window. The air outside had taken on a green tint. Something barely noticeable, but if you looked hard enough, it was there. Yeah, you, you got, gotta be careful about that. I said to Jerry via the window. The massive black shape had returned. I could see it just below the surface of the clouds, not visible enough to tell what it was. My mind tried to reconcile it with something I understood. A blimp? Not this high, at least I don't think so. Whatever it was, it was bigger than the 747 by a long shot and flying just below us. What are you staring at? I heard Jerry ask from behind me. I'm not sure. My voice was quiet and trailed off at the end of my sentence. I turned away from the window and back at Jerry, who was looking at me with wild, panicked eyes. You're not sure? His voice went, uh, went up a couple octaves on the word sure. What do you mean you're not sure? There's something. It trailed off as I stared back out the window looking for a sign of the shadow. It appeared to have dipped back below the clouds again. You know, never mind. It's just probably my eyes playing tricks on me. Nerves, he said again, putting his bleeding thumbnail back in his mouth. Just a bad case in the... the... A scream broke the quiet of the cabin and cut off Jerry at the end of his thought. Without removing my seatbelt, I strained upward to try and catch sight of what was happening. Jerry did the same, and I could see just about every passenger in my row trying to catch a glimpse of what was going on. I heard thrashing about five or six aisles ahead of me, then saw a man spill out into the aisle, gripping a blonde girl by the hair. 
He was screaming at her, but I couldn't make out the words. Several other men got up and tried to restrain him. He fought hard against them, too. I saw one take an elbow to a face, another kick to a knee, and I nearly moved my seatbelt, but before I had the chance, the plane rocked hard again, and all the people standing in the aisle lost their footing and fell, slamming into the seats. I could hear the flight attendants calling the captain and telling everyone to return to their seats and put their seatbelts back on. The plane continued shaking and heard someone behind me let out another scream. I attempted to crane my neck backwards, but on my way caught sight of Jerry. He had resumed the campaign to rid himself of the skin on his thumb. He seemingly didn't care any longer, and blood streaked his lips and stained his teeth. Just a bad case of the nerves, he said. I dropped back into my seat, listening to the commotion break out in front of me and behind me. I heard screaming, mumbling, a baby started crying somewhere. The plane continued to dip and shake, and despite my curiosity as to what may be happening around me, fear rooted me to my seat. The lights flickered off again, leaving the plane dark for what felt like forever. The intercom fired up again, and the familiar voice of the captain filled the air, clearly audible despite the panicked loud voices all around me. Attention, folks, it looks like things are getting worse up here. I would ask that everyone remain in their seats and keep their seatbelts on to avoid any accidents. I would also ask that someone, please, please, for the love of God, shut that baby up. The last part, he said, like he would make any other announcement. Calm and collected. I felt my chest tighten when I heard it. Something was very, very wrong. Jerry's mouth was caked in his blood now, most of the tip of his thumb mangled by his own teeth. He kept repeating the same phrase over and over again. Just a bad case of the nurse. The baby continued screaming somewhere off to my left. I sympathized. I wanted to scream myself. The blonde girl rushed past me down the aisle and toward the bathroom. She was crying her eyes out. One of the flight attendants attempted to stop her, but she flew past and locked the door behind her. It seemed as if the other brawlers had returned to their seats, the instigator violently thrashing against his seatbelt. I was unsure if someone else had strapped him in or not. I hadn't been looking. Cabin lights were flicking on now rather than off. It seemed the cabin was filled with darkness. People would occasionally shout across the aisles to other people or at the flight attendants, nasty slurs that seemed to come out of nowhere. Freaking bastard. Stupid woman, I'll kill you. Shut that baby up already. I should toss you out the emergency exit, you worthless piece of garbage. Other people just mumbled to themselves, repeating mantras like poor Jerry, his formerly friendly disposition, replaced by a blank stare fixated on the seat in front of him. The plane continued its dance in the sky, shaking like a prostitute at a Sunday morning service. I stared out the window again. The shadows were back, more brazen about their trips above the clouds. There was three I could see, but still not make out clearly in the darkness. I strained my eyes, staring at them. They seemed to be writhing shapes of darkness, unable to be touched by the moonlight, and I could have sworn that I saw wings. They dipped below the clouds again and out of my sight. I kept my face pressed against the glass. I was unsure 
If the actions of my fellow passengers were more or less unsettling than the idea that we were not alone in the sky. When I did finally return my attention to what was going on around me, convinced that the shadows were gone, I noticed the flight attendants had given up their meager attempts to control the passengers or keep them calm. I could only see one from where I was sitting, and she was sitting in one of the empty seats across the aisle from me. She was mumbling to herself in some nonsense language. Hearing it made my blood run cold. People were losing their minds, and this whole plane was going insane. The intercom again, and the sound of it crackling to life made me feel sick and filled with terror. Attention, passengers, we're not going to be okay. We're not going to make it, so fragile we are. Nothing in the face of the gods. The captain's words were unsettling enough, but the way he sounded, his voice was too low, like he was winding down a dying watch. You may as well just give up. Just tear each other apart for all I care. Just tear. Just eat each other. His voice, robotic, droning, and hopeless. As the intercom clicked off, the panic and insanity that erupted around me was nothing short of chaos. It was as if this was all lying just beneath the surface of most of the passengers, and they were just waiting for the go-ahead to start brutalizing each other. The scream still ring in my ears. It was the sound of death reaping dozens of people at once. I shrank in my seat, hiding behind Jerry as best as I could. He still sat blankly staring at the seat back in front of him, repeating those same words with blood dripping down his chin, the bone at the tip of his thumb exposed. Uh, just a bad case of nerves. In the distance, the screaming baby was finally silenced. An eruption of laughter came forth, like a wave followed by more screams. I heard more muttering in gibberish, like some alien language I could barely recognize as speech, followed by more screams of terror. I saw a few people, like me, some trying to run for the restrooms to lock themselves in, others shrinking in their seats in an attempt to avoid the madness. I watched as the flight attendant across from me was tackled in the aisle right next to me. She reached out her hand, her eyes begging me for help, as she was pinned down by an aging Japanese businessman. He sunk nicotine-stained teeth into her throat, cutting off her screams, and tore loose as much flesh as he could fit into his mouth. They were literally eating each other. Another flash of green filled the cabin, and the plane struck turbulence again. Some people screamed in absolute terror. Others cheered. I wasn't sure in that moment if the insane were praying that the plane would go down in the ocean or if the sane were. I looked away, back out the window. I wish I hadn't. I wish I had just shut my eyes. Hell, I wish I had run out into those aisles and let the lunatics tear me apart. Instead, I decided to look out that window one more time. I saw the things again. This time they weren't dipping below the clouds or disappearing from my sight. They were right next to the plane, keeping pace. The sounds around me seemed to vanish as I looked at the horrid things fly alongside us. Writhing masses of tentacles with wings 
something that no logical mind could accept as real. Their shadowy appendages reached out toward the parrot plane. The tentacles closest to me parted, opening into what appeared to be a great eye. It had three irises and three pupils, two on top and one on bottom. It glowed a maddening, sickly green color. Looking at it made my head hurt and filled me with a dread that was not even matched by the things going on around me. Another flash of green filled the cabin, then a horrid sound, like the roaring of some ancient demon sent forth to drag us all to hell. The plane continued to take a beating from the turbulence. The oxygen masks dropped, the lights continued to flicker, and baggage flew out from the compartments. I watched a red-haired man, his face covered in gore, with flesh hanging from his teeth, take a large curry onto his face. I heard his neck snap even amidst the chaos, or at least I thought I heard it. The plane dipped, casting bodies, both living and dead, down the aisles. The drink carts slammed into whatever corpses blocked their way, sending small bottles flying everywhere. Amid the chaos, Jerry unbuckled his seatbelt and looked at me one last time. Just a bad case of the nerves. He stood and walked into the madness. As he stepped into the aisle, I saw someone leap over the seat in the dark and drag him away into the maelstrom of violence. The plane seemed to be falling from the sky. As it jostled me around, my face once again ended up pressed against the window. I heard the screams, laughter, and insane ramblings continue behind me as I stared outside into the void-like eye of the creature that continued to keep pace with the plane. The darkened cabin filled with a dim glow again. Quick green flashes lit up the night sky, briefly illuminating the writhing, shadowy creature flying beside us, filling my eyes with horrors that I either can't or won't recall. A sound like screeching metal reverberated in my ears, followed by a screech of something terribly inhuman. I watched the things suddenly break away from us and dip back down below the clouds, their tentacles flailing about as they vanished into the darkness below us. The sound grew louder and louder, culminating in something that I thought at first was one of the engines exploding. I readied myself for the plane to just start plummeting out of the sky, or a giant hole to open up in the side and start engulfing seats in a wave of fire. Instead, the insanity that had filled the cabin for what felt like hours ended even more abruptly than it had arrived. The gibbering mad speaking, the screams of pure lunacy, the laughter of people going mad. All gone. Replacing them were calls for help, screams of terror, and people sobbing uncontrollably. Even the plane itself seemed to be loosed from the grip of whatever had taken hold of us. Starting to right itself, the cabin continued to shake, but no more than you would expect from ordinary turbulence. I heard the intercom come to life once more. This time, I could barely make out what was being said above the sounds of the other passengers screaming for help or out in pain. It wasn't the voice of the captain anymore, though, and I shuddered to think of what had happened to him. I guessed the co-pilot had taken over the flight. He talked about getting us on the ground as soon as possible. 
talked about tending to the wounded, he asked the flight attendants to sound off so he could determine how many members of his crew remained alive or uninjured. I was frozen, catatonic. Once we finally landed in London, even as the plane filled with medics in hazmat suits, doctors, and cops, I sat there, incapable of moving from my seat. The entire time, my seatbelt still firmly fastened, as if it were the only thing keeping me from plummeting into madness. When I was finally pulled from my seat, I screamed. It was all I could do, just scream and scream and scream until I blacked out. I was questioned over and over again. Every time I told the same story and every time I was told the same thing in response. Doctors, FBI, Interpol, all of them regurgitated the same lies. They said it had been a terrorist attack, that hallucinogenic drugs had been pumped into the plane's cabin, and that in order to keep the world from going into a panic about chemical attacks, they needed to keep the matter quiet. It was my duty as a patriot, my duty as a citizen of the world, to keep word from getting out, they said. In the end, I was not only threatened with violence or imprisonment, but ultimately enticed with money. I knew none of what they told me was true. I'd done my share of drugs. I know what it's like to hallucinate. Even under the influence of such drugs, people don't murder each other. At least not in droves. And they certainly don't eat each other. They at least don't in droves. From what I heard, the captain tore his own eyes out. Then there was the way it ended, so abruptly. If the lie they fed me had any truth to it at all, the situation would have ended, not as it had. The plane would have crashed, it would have ended up in the ocean, all passengers lost. Until now, the threats and deliveries of cash had kept me quiet, but not anymore. Honestly, I just didn't care anymore. I don't care about the payoffs or my duty as a patriot. I just want the nightmares to end. I don't want to hear the screams anymore, I want to sleep, dear God. I want to sleep so badly. I need people to know there is something out there, something above the clouds. I'm afraid I still don't know what it is. My brain can hardly even handle the memory of it, and my words do no justice to the horror I witness. Before I leave this world at the end of a rope, I need to warn others. Watch the skies, and if you must fly... Good luck up there. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our final story for this evening is brought to us by author Arthur Conan Doyle entitled The Horror of the Heights. The idea that the extraordinary narrative, which had been called the Joyce Armstrong Fragment, is an elaborate practical joke, evolved by some unknown person, cursed by a perverted and sinister sense of humor, has now been abandoned by all who have examined the matter. The most macabre and imaginative of plotters would hesitate before linking his morbid fancies with the unquestioned and tragic facts which reinforce the statement. Though the assertions contained in it are amazing and even monstrous, it is, nonetheless, forcing itself upon the general intelligence that they are true, and that we must readjust our ideas to the new situation. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger. I will endeavor in this narrative, which reproduces the original document in its necessarily somewhat fragmentary form, to lay before the reader the whole of the facts up to date, prefacing my statement by saying that, if there be any doubt, who, the narrative of Joyce Armstrong, there can be no question at all as to the facts concerning Lieutenant Myrtle, R.N., and Mr. Hay Connor, who undoubtedly met their end in the manner described. The Joyce Armstrong fragment was found in the field which is called Lower Haycock, lying one mile to the westward of the village of Witham, upon Kent and Sussex border. It was on the 15th of September last that an agricultural laborer, James Flynn, in the employment of Matthew Dodd, farmer of the Chantry Farm, Withiam, perceived a briar pipe lying near the footpath which skirts the hedge in Lower Haycock, A few paces further on, he picked up a pair of broken binocular glasses. Finally, among some nestled in a ditch, he caught sight of a flat, canvasback book, which proved to be a notebook with detachable leaves, some of which had come loose and were fluttering along the base of the hedge. These he collected, but some, including the first, were never recovered, 
and leave a deplorable hiatus in this all-important statement. The notebook was taken by the laborer to his master, who in turn showed it to Dr. J. H. Atherton of Hartfield. This gentleman at once recognized the need for an expert examination, and the manuscript was forwarded to the Aero Club in London, where it now lies. The first two pages of the manuscript are missing. There is also one torn away at the end of the narrative, though none of these affect the general coherence of the story. It is conjectured that the missing opening is concerned with the record of Mr. Joyce Armstrong's qualifications as an aeronaut, which can be gathered from other sources and are admitted to the unsurpassed among the air pilots of England. For many years, he has been looked upon as among the most daring and the most intellectual of flying men, a combination which has enabled him to both invent and test several new devices, including the common gyroscopic attachment which is known by his name. The main body of the manuscript is written neatly in ink, but the last few lines are in pencil and are so ragged as to be hardly legible exactly. In fact, as they might be expected to appear if they were scribbled off hurriedly from the seat of a moving airplane. There are, it may be added, several stains, both on the last page and on the outside cover which have been pronounced by the home office experts to be blood, probably human and certainly mammalian. The fact that something closely resembling the organism of malaria was discovered in his blood, and that Joyce Armstrong is known to have suffered from intermittent fever, is a remarkable example of the new weapons which modern science has placed in the hands of our detectives. And now a word as to the personality of the author of this epic-making statement. Joyce Armstrong, according to the few friends who really knew something of the man, was a poet and a dreamer, as well as a mechanic and an inventor, he was a man of considerable wealth, much of which he had spent in the pursuit of his aeronautical hobby. He had four private airplanes in his hangars near Devizes, and is said to have made no fewer than 170 ascents in the course of the last year. He was a retiring man with dark moods in which he would avoid the society of his fellows. Captain Dangerfield, who knew him better than anyone, says that there were times when his eccentricity threatened to develop into something more serious. His habit of carrying a shotgun with him in his aeroplane was one manifestation of it. Another was the morbid effect which the fall of Lieutenant Myrtle had upon his mind. Myrtle, who was attempting the height record, fell from an altitude of something over 30,000 feet. Horrible to narrate, his head was entirely obliterated, though his body and limbs preserved their configuration. At every gathering of airmen, Joyce Armstrong, according to Dangerfield, would ask with an enigmatic smile, And where, pray, is Myrtle's head? On another occasion, after dinner, at the mess of the flying school on Salisbury Plain, he started a debate as to what will be the most permanent danger which airmen will have to encounter. Having listened to successive opinions as to air pockets, faulty construction, and overbanking, 
He ended by shrugging his shoulders and refusing to put forward his own views, though he gave the impression that they differed from any advanced by his companions. It is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show that he had a strong premonition of disaster. With these essential explanations, I will now give the narrative exactly as it stands, beginning at page three of the blood-stained notebook. Nevertheless, when I dined at Reims with Coselli and Gustave Raymond, I found that neither of them was aware of any particular danger in the higher layers of the atmosphere. I did not actually say what was in my thoughts, but I got so near to it that if they had any corresponding idea, they could not have failed to express it. But they, then, are two empty, vainglorious fellows with no thought beyond seeing their silly names in the newspaper. It is interesting to note that neither of them have ever been much beyond the 20,000-foot level. Of course, men have been higher than this, both in balloons and in the ascent of mountains. It must be well above that point that the airplane enters the danger zone, always presuming that my premonitions are correct. Airplaning has been with us now for more than 20 years, and one might well ask, why should this peril be only revealing itself in our day? The answer is obvious. In the old days of weak engines, when a 100-horsepower gnome or green was considered ample for every need, the flights were very restricted. Now that 300-horsepower is the rule rather than the exception, visits to the upper layers have become easier and more common. Some of us can remember how, in our youth... Garros made a worldwide reputation by attaining 19,000 feet, and it was considered a remarkable achievement to fly over the Alps. Our standard now has been immeasurably raised, and there are 20 high flights for one in former years. Many of them have been undertaken with impunity. The 30,000-foot level has been reached time after time, with no discomfort beyond cold and asthma. What does this prove? A visitor might descend upon this planet a thousand times and never see a tiger. Yet tigers exist, and if he chanced to come down into a jungle, he might be devoured. There are jungles of the upper air, and there are worse things than tigers which inhabit them. I believe in time they will map these jungles accurately out. Even at the present moment, I could name two of them. One of them lies over the Pau-Bierritz, district of France, another is just over my head, as I write here in my house in Wiltshire. I rather think there is a third in the Homburg-Weisbaden district. It was a disappearance of the airmen that first set me thinking. Of course, everyone said that they had fallen into the sea, but that did not satisfy me at all. First, there was the Verrier in France. The machine was found near Bayonne but they never got his body. There was also the case of Baxter, who vanished, though his engine and some of the iron fixings were found in a wood in Leicestershire. In that case, Dr. Milton of Amsbury, who was watching the flight with a telescope, declares that just before the clouds obscured the view, he saw the machine, which was at an enormous height, 
suddenly rise perpendicularly upwards in a succession of jerks in a matter that he would have thought to be impossible. That was the last scene of Baxter. There was a correspondence in the papers, but it never led to anything. There were several other similar cases, and then there was the death of Hay Connor. What a cackle there was about an unsolved mystery of the air, and what columns in the halfpenny papers, and yet how little was ever done to get to the bottom of the business. He came down in a tremendous vol plane from an unknown height. He never got off his machine and died in the pilot seat. Died of what? Heart disease, said the doctors. Rubbish. Hey, Connor's heart was as sound as mine is. What did Venables say? Venables was the only man who was at his side when he died. He said that he was shivering and looked like a man who had been badly scared. Died of fright, said Venables, but could not imagine what he was frightened about. Only said one word to Venables, which sounded like monstrous. They could make nothing of that at the inquest, but I could make something of it. Monsters! That was the last word of poor Harry Hay Connor, and he did die of fright, just as Venables thought. And then there was Myrtle's head. Do you really believe, does anybody really believe, that a man's head could be driven clean into his body by the force of a fall? Well, perhaps it may be possible, but I, for one, have never believed that it was so with Myrtle. And the grease upon his clothes, all slimy with grease, said somebody at the inquest. Queer that nobody got thinking after that. I did. But then I'd been thinking for a long time, a good long time. I made three ascents. How Dangerfield used to chaff me about my shotgun, but I've never been high enough. Now, with this new light, Paul Veroner machine, and its 175 rover, I should easily touch the 30,000 tomorrow. I'll have a shot at the record. Maybe I shall have a shot at something else as well. Of course, it's dangerous. If a fellow wants to avoid danger, he'd best keep out of flying altogether and subside, finally, into flannel slippers and a dressing gown. But I'll visit the air jungle tomorrow, and if there's anything there, I shall know it. If I return, I'll find myself a bit of a celebrity. If I don't, this notebook may explain what I'm trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. I chose my Paul Veroner monoplane for the job. There's nothing like a monoplane when real work is to be done. Beaumont found that out in very early days. For one thing, it doesn't mind damp, and the weather looks as if we should be in the clouds all the time. It's a bonny little model, and answers my hand like a tender-mouthed horse. The engine is a ten-cylinder rotary rover, working up to 175. It has all the modern improvements, enclosed fuselage, high-curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers, and three speeds, worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. I took a shotgun with me and a dozen cartridges filled with buckshot. You should have seen the face of Perkins, my old mechanic, when I directed him to put them in. I was dressed like an Arctic explorer with two jerseys under my overalls, thick socks inside my padded boots, a storm cap with flaps and my talc goggles. 
It was stifling outside the hangars, but I was going for the summit of the Himalayas and had to dress for the part. Perkins knew there was something on and implored me to take him with me. Perhaps I should if I were using the biplane, but a monoplane is a one-man show. If you want to get the last foot of lift out of it. Of course, I took an oxygen bag. The man who goes for the altitude record without one will either be frozen or smothered or both. I had a good look at the planes, the rudder bar and the elevating lever, before I got in. Everything was in order so far as I could see. Then I switched on my engine and found that she was running sweetly. When they let her go, she rose almost at once upon the lowest speed. I circled my home field once or twice just to warm her up, and then, with a wave to Perkins and the others, I flattened out my planes and put her on her highest. She skimmed like a swallow downwind for eight or ten miles until I turned her nose up a little, and she began to climb in a great spiral for the dark cloud bank above me. It's all important to rise slowly and adapt yourself to the pressure as you go. It was a close, warm day for an English September, and there was the hush and heaviness of impending rain. Now and then there came sudden puffs of wind from the southwest, one of them so gusty and unexpected that it caught me napping and turned me half around for an instant. I remember the time when gusts and whirls and air pockets used to be things of danger before we learned to put the overmastering power into our engines. Just as I reached the cloud banks with the altimeter, marking 3,000, down came the rain. My word, how it poured. It drummed upon my wings and lashed against my face, blurring my glasses so that I could hardly see. I got down on to a low speed, for it was painful to travel against it. As I got higher, it became hail, and I had to turn tail to it. One of my cylinders was out of action, a dirty plug, I should imagine. But still, I was rising steadily with plenty of power. After a bit, the trouble passed, whatever it was, and I heard the full, deep-throated purr, the ten singing as one. That's where the beauty of our modern silencers comes in. We can at last control our engines by ear, how they squeal and squeak and sob when they're in trouble. All those cries for help were wasted in the old days, when every sound was swallowed up by the monstrous racket of the machine. If only the early aviators could come back to see the beauty and perfection of the mechanism which has been brought at the cost of their lives. About 9.30 I was nearing the clouds. Down below me, all blurred and shadowed with rain, lay the vast expanse of Salisbury Plain. Half a dozen flying machines were doing hack work at the 10,000-foot level, looking like little black swallows against the green background. I dare say they were wondering what I was doing up in cloudland. Suddenly, a gray curtain drew across beneath me, and the wet folds of vapor were swirling around my face. It was clamorly cold and miserable, but I was above the hailstorm, and that was something gained. The cloud was as dark and thick as a London fog. In my anxiety to get clear, I cocked her nose up until the automatic alarm bell rang, and I actually began to slide backwards. My sopped and dripping wings had made me heavier than I thought, but presently I was in lighter cloud and soon had cleared the lair. 
There was a second, opal-colored and fleecy, at a great height above my head, a white, unbroken ceiling above and a dark, unbroken floor below, with a monoplane laboring upwards upon a vast spiral between them. It is deadly lonely in these cloud spaces. Once a great flight of some small water birds went past me, flying very fast to the westwards. The quick whir of their wing and their musical cry were cheery to my ear. I fancied that they were teal, but I am a wretched zoologist. Now that we humans have become birds, we must really learn to know our brethren by sight. The wind down beneath whirled and swayed the broad cloud plain. Once a great eddy formed in it, a whirlpool of vapor, and through it, as a down funnel, I caught sight of the distant world. A large white biplane was passing at a vast depth beneath me. I fancy it was the morning mail between Bristol and London. Then the drift swirled inwards again, and the great solitude was unbroken. Just after ten, I touched the lower edge of the upper cloud stratum. It consisted of fine diaphanous vapor drifting sw uh, swiftly from the westward. The wind had been steadily rising all this time, and it was now blowing a sharp breeze. Twenty-eight an hour by my gauge. Already it was very cold, though my altimeter only marked nine thousand. The engines were working beautifully, and we went droning steadily upwards. The cloud bank was thicker than I had expected, but at last it thinned out into a golden mist before me, and then in an instant I had shot out from it, and there was an unclouded sky and a brilliant sun above my head, all blue and gold above, all shining silver below, one vast glimmering plain as far as my eyes could reach. It was quarter past ten, and the paragraph needle pointed to twelve thousand eight hundred. Up I went. My ears concentrated upon the deep purring of my motor, my eyes busy always with the watch, the revolution indicator, the petrol lever, and the oil pump. No wonder aviators are said to be a fearless race. With so many things to think of, there is no time to trouble about oneself. About this time I noted how unreliable the compass was when above a certain height from Earth. At 15,000 feet mine was pointing east and a point south. The sun and the wind gave me my true bearings. I had hoped to reach an eternal stillness in these high altitudes, but with every thousand feet of ascent the gale grew stronger. My machine groaned and trembled in every joint and rivet as she faced it, and swept away like a sheet of paper when I banked her on the turn, skimming downwind at a greater pace, perhaps, than ever mortal man had moved. Yet I had always to turn again and tack up into the wind's eye, for it was not merely a height record that I was after. By all my calculations, it was above Little Wiltshire that my air jungle lay, and all my labor might be lost if I struck the outer layers at some farther point. When I reached the 19,000-foot level, which was about midday, the wind was so severe that I looked with some anxiety to the stays of my wings, expecting momentarily to see them snap or slacken. I even cast loose the parachute behind me and fastened its hook into the ring of my leather belt so as to be ready for the worst. 
Now was the time when a bit of scamped work by the mechanic is paid for by the life of the aeronaut. But she held together bravely. Every cord and strut was humping and vibrating like so many harp strings, but it was glorious to see how, for all the beating and buffeting, she was still the conqueror of nature and the mistress of the sky. There is surely something divine in man himself that he should rise so superior to the limitations which creation seemed to impose, rise, too, by such unselfish, heroic devotion as this air conquest has shown. Talk of human degeneration? When has such a story as this been written in the annals of our race? These were the thoughts in my head as I climbed that monstrous inclined plane, with the wind sometimes beating in my face and sometimes whistling behind my ears while the cloud land beneath me fell away to such a distance that the folds and hummocks of silver had all smoothed out into one flat, shining plain. But suddenly, I had a horrible and unprecedented experience. I have known before what it is to be in what our neighbors have called tourbillion, but never on such a scale as this. That huge sweeping river of wind of which I have spoken had, as it appears, whirlpools within it which were as monstrous as itself. Without a moment's warning, I was dragged suddenly into the heart of one. I spun round for a minute or two with such velocity that I almost lost my senses, and then fell suddenly, left-wing foremost, down the vacuum funnel in the center. I dropped like a stone, lost nearly a thousand feet, it was only my belt that kept me in my seat, and the shock and breathlessness left me hanging half insensible over the side of the fuselage. But I am always capable of a supreme effort. It is one of my great merits as an aviator. I was conscious that the descent was slower. The whirlpool was a cone rather than a funnel, and I had come to the apex. With a terrific wrench throwing my weight all to one side, I leveled my plane and brought her headway into the wind. In an instant, I had shot out of the eddies and was skimming down the sky. Then, shaken but victorious, I turned her nose up and began once more my steady grind on the upward spiral. I took a large sweep to avoid the danger spot of the whirlpool, and soon I was safely above it. Just after one o'clock, I was 21,000 feet above sea level. To my great joy... I had topped the gale, and with every hundred feet of ascent, the air grew stiller. On the other hand, it was very cold, and I was conscious of that peculiar nausea which goes with rarefication of the air. For the first time, I unscrewed the mouth of my oxygen bag and took an occasional whiff of the glorious gas. I could feel it running like a cordial through my veins, and I was exhilarated almost to the point of drunkenness. I shouted and sang as I soared upwards into the cold, still outer world. It is very clear to me that the insensibility which came upon Glacier, and in a lesser degree upon Coxwell, when in 1862 they ascended in a balloon to the height of 30,000 feet, that it was due to the extreme speed with which a perpendicular ascent is made. Doing it at an easy gradient and accustoming oneself to the lessened barometric pressure by slow degrees, there are no such dreadful symptoms. 
At the same great height, I found that even without my oxygen inhaler, I could breathe without undue distress. It was bitterly cold, however, and my thermometer was at zero Fahrenheit. At one thirty, I was nearly seven miles above the surface of the earth and still ascending steadily. I found, however, that the rarefied air was giving markedly less support to my plane and that my angle of ascent had to be considerably lowered in consequence. It was already clear that even in my lightweight and strong engine power, there was a point in front of me where I should be held. To make matters worse, one of my sparking plugs was in trouble again, and there was intermittent misfiring in the engine. My heart was heavy with the fear of failure. It was about that time that I had a most extraordinary experience— Something whizzed past me in a trail of smoke and exploded with a loud hissing sound, sending forth a cloud of steam. For an instant I could not imagine what had happened. Then I remembered that the earth is forever being bombarded by meteor stone and would hardly be inhabitable if they were not in nearly every case turned to vapor in the outer layers of the atmosphere. Here is a new danger for the high-altitude man for two others passed me when I was nearing the 40,000-foot mark. I cannot doubt that at the edge of the Earth's envelope, the risk would be a very real one. My barograph needle marked 41,300 when I became aware that I could go no farther. Physically, the strain was not as yet greater than I could bear, but my machine had reached its limit. The attenuated air gave no firm support to the wings, and the least tilt developed into sideslip, which she seemed sluggish on her controls. Possibly, had the engine been at its best, another thousand feet might have been within our capacity, but it was still misfiring, and two out of the ten cylinders appeared to be out of action. If I had not already reached the zone for which I was searching, then I should never see it upon this journey. But, was it not possible that I had tamed it? Soaring in circles like a monstrous hawk upon the 40,000-foot level, I let the monoplane guide herself, and with my Mannheim glass, I made a careful observation of my surroundings. The heavens were perfectly clear. There was no indication of those dangers which I had imagined. I've said that I was soaring in circles. It struck me suddenly that I would do well to take a wider sweep and open up a new air track. If the hunter entered an earth jungle, he would drive through it as if he wished to find his game. My reasoning had led me to believe that the air jungle, which I had imagined, lay somewhere over Wiltshire. This should be to the south and west of me. I took my bearings from the sun, for the compass was hopeless, and no trace of earth was to be seen, nothing but the distant silver cloud plain. However, I got my direction as best I might, and kept her head straight to the mark. I reckoned that my petrol supply would not last for more than another hour or so, but I could afford to use it to the last drop since a single magnificent volplane could at any time take me to the earth. Suddenly I was aware of something new. The air in front of me had lost its crystal clearness. It was full of long, ragged wisps of something which I can only compare to very fine cigarette smoke. 
It hung about in wreaths and coils, twisting and turning, slowly in the sunlight. As the monoplane shot through it, I was aware of a faint taste of oil upon my lips, and there was a greasy scum upon the woodwork of the machine. Some infinitely fine organic matter appeared to be suspended in the atmosphere. There was no life there. It was inchoate and diffuse, extending for many square acres and then fringing off into the void. No, it was not life, but might it not be the remains of life? Above all, might it not be the food of life, of monstrous life, even as the humble grease of the ocean is the food for the mighty whale? The thought was in my mind when my eyes looked upwards and I saw the most wonderful vision that ever man has seen. Can I hope to convey it to you even as I saw it myself last Thursday? Conceive a jellyfish such as sails in our summer seas, bell-shaped and of enormous size, far larger, I should judge, than the Dome of St. Paul's. It was of a light pink color veined with a delicate green, but the whole huge fabric so tenuous that it was but a fairy outline against the dark blue sky. It pulsated with a delicate and regular rhythm. From it there depended two long, drooping green tentacles, which swayed slowly backward and forwards. This gorgeous vision passed gently with noiseless dignity over my head, as light and fragile as a soap bubble, and drifted upon its stately way. I had half-turned my monoplane, that I might look after this beautiful creature, when in a moment I found myself amidst a perfect fleet of them, of all sizes, but none so large as the first. Some were quite small, but the majority about as big as an average balloon, and with much the same curvature at the top. There was in them a delicacy of texture and coloring, which reminded me of the finest Venetian glass. Pale shades of pink and green were the prevailing tints, but all had a lovely iridescence where they shimmered through their dainty form. Some hundred of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange, unknown argosies of the sky, creatures whose forms and substance were attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of earth. But soon my attention was drawn to a new phenomenon, the serpents of the outer air. These were long, thin, fantastic coils of vapor-like material, which turned and twisted with great speed, flying round and round at such a pace that the eyes could hardly follow them. Some of these ghost-like creatures were twenty or thirty feet long, but it was difficult to tell their girth, for their outline was so hazy that it seemed to fade away into the air around them. These air snakes were of a very light gray or smoke color, with some darker lines within, which gave the impression of a definite organism. One of them whisked past my very face, and I was conscious of a cold, clammy contact, but their composition was so unsubstantial that I could not connect them with any thought of physical danger, any more than the beautiful bell-like creatures which had preceded them. There was no more solidity in their frames than in the floating spume from a broken wave. But a more terrible experience was in store for me. Floating downwards from a great height, there came a purplish, 
patch of vapor, small as I saw at first, but rapidly enlarging as it approached me, and until it appeared to be hundreds of square feet in size. Though fashioned of some transparent jelly-like substance, it was nonetheless of much more definite outline and solid consistence than anything which I had seen before. There were more traces, too, of a physical organization, especially two vast, shadowy, circular plates upon either side, which may have been eyes, and a perfectly solid white projection between them, which was as curved and cruel as the beak of a vulture. The whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening, and it kept changing its color from a very light mauve to a dark, angry purple so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. On the upper curve of its huge body, there were three great projections, which I can only describe as enormous bubbles, and I was convinced, as I looked at them, that they were charged with some extremely light gas, which served to buoy up the misshapen and semi-solid mass in the rarefied air. The creature moved swiftly along, keeping pace easily with the monoplane, and for twenty miles or more it formed my horrible escort, hovering over me like a bird of prey which is waiting to pounce. Its method of progression, done so swiftly that it was not easy to follow, was to throw out a long, glutinous streamer in front of it, which in turn seemed to draw forward the rest of the writhing body. So elastic and gelatinous was it that never for two successive minutes was it the same shape, and yet each change made it more threatening and loathsome than the first. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. The vague, goggling eyes which were turned always upon me were cold and merciless in their viscid hatred. I dipped the nose of my monoplane downward to escape it. As I did so, as quick as a flash, there shot out a long tentacle from this mass of floating blubber, and it fell as light and sinuous as a whiplash across the front of my machine. There was a loud hiss as it lay for a moment across the hot engine, and it whisked itself into the air again, while the huge flat body drew itself together as if in sudden pain. I dipped to a vol peak, but again a tentacle fell over the monoplane and was shorn off by the propeller as easily as it might have cut through a smoke wreath. A long, gliding, sticky, serpent-like coil came from behind and caught me round the waist, dragged me out of the fuselage. I tore at it, my fingers sinking into the smooth, glue-like surface, and for an instant I disengaged myself, but only to be caught round the boot by another coil, which gave me a jerk that tilted me almost on my back. As I fell over, I blazed off both barrels of my gun, though, indeed, it was like attacking an elephant with a pea-shooter, to imagine that any human weapon could cripple that mighty bulk. And yet I aimed better than I knew, for with a loud report, one of the great blisters upon the creature's back exploded with the puncture of the buckshot. It was very clear that my conjecture was right, that these vast clear bladders were distended with some lifting gas, for in an instant the huge cloud-like body turned sideways, writhing desperately to find its balance, while the white beak snapped and gaped in horrible fury. 
but already I had shot away on the steepest glide that I dared to attempt. My engine still full on, the propeller flying, and the force of gravity shooting me downward like an airlight. Far behind me, I saw a dull purplish smudge growing swiftly smaller and merging into the blue sky behind it. I was safe out of the deadly jungle of the outer air. Once out of danger, I throttled my engine, for nothing tears a machine to pieces quicker than running on full power from a height. It was a glorious spiral volplane from nearly eight miles of altitude, first to the level of the silver cloud bank, then to that of the storm cloud beneath it, and finally in beating rain to the surface of the earth. I saw the Bristol Channel beneath me as I broke from the clouds, but having still some petrol in my tank, I got twenty miles inland before I found myself stranded in a field half a mile from the village of Ashcombe. There I got three tins of petrol from a passing motor car, and at ten minutes past six that evening, I alighted gently in my own home meadow of devises, after such a journey as no mortal upon earth has ever yet taken and lived to tell the tale. I've seen the beauty and have seen the horror of the heights, and the greater beauty or greater horror than that is not within the ken of men. And now it is my plan to go once again before I give my results to the world. My reason for this is that I must surely have something to show by way of proof before I lay suck a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. Those lovely, iridescent bubbles of the air should not be hard to capture. They drift slowly upon their way, and the swift bonoplane could intercept their leisurely course. It is likely enough that they would dissolve in the heavier layers of the atmosphere, and that some small heap of amorphous jelly might be all that I should bring to earth with me. And yet something there would surely be by which I could substantiate my story. Yes, I will go, even if I run a risk by doing so. These purple horrors will not seem to be numerous. It is probable that I shall not see one. If I do, I shall dive at once. At the worst, there is always the gunshot and my knowledge of. Here, a page of the manuscript is unfortunately missing. On the next page is written in large, straggling writing. Forty-three thousand feet. I shall never see Earth again. There beneath me, three of them, God help me. It's a dreadful death to die. Such in its entirety is the Joyce Armstrong statement. Of the man, nothing has since been seen. Pieces of his shattered monoplane have been picked up in the preserves of Mr. Bud Lushington upon the borders of Kent and Sussex, within a few miles of the spot where the notebook was discovered. If the unfortunate aviator's theory is correct that this air jungle, as he called it, existed only over the southwest of England, then it would seem that he had fled from it at the full speed of his monoplane, but had been overtaken and devoured by these horrible creatures at some spot in the outer atmosphere above the place where the grim relics were found. The picture of that monoplane skimming down the sky with his nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off always from the earth 
while they gradually closed in upon their victim, is one upon which a man who valued his sanity would prefer not to dwell. There are many, as I am aware, who still jeer at the facts which I have here set down, but even they must admit that Joyce Armstrong has disappeared, and I would commend to them his own words. This notebook may explain what I'm trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it, but no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for joining me this week for tonight's regularly scheduled Tales of Terror. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Tonight's program has been brought to you by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly, your host, Otis Jiry. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com for your chance to have me bring your sinister story to life. If you enjoyed what you heard and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment for your chance to be entered into a weekly prize drawing. Your feedback means a lot to us. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories or the Otis Jiry channel, my own digital home away from home, where you'll find dozens of previously released horror and sci-fi stories from yours truly. If you'd like to connect with or support me and CTFDN, visit the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Facebook page or at their website, chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can support our programs by becoming a patron and get access to hundreds of stories, all ad-free. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with another pair of terrifying tales that'll keep you up all night. Who needs sleep anyway? You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.